Wow, thank you, Gary, Chloe, team. Good worship. I don't know if y'all noticed, Gary kind of had that, that neck thing going a little bit today. Did he might pick up on that as sort of a new move for him this morning? I love that. Good deal. Well, as we as a church gather at this altar uh, today, um, we're going to continue in our, our fall series called Do Good as we move through the book of Titus. So if you've got your Bibles with you this morning or you've got a tablet or a phone, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Titus. If, if not, just uh, you can follow along on the screen as we uh, put the scripture up there today. The title to today's message is Good Leaders. Good leaders. And so we're going to continue to walk through Titus together. And, and just a, a quick refresher, uh, if you weren't here last week or you've not been involved in one of the small groups or one of the classes downstairs, uh, Titus is, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a young man that he was mentoring into the ministry. Um, similar to Timothy, a lot more folks are familiar with Timothy than they are Titus, but the same sort of relationship. Uh, Titus himself, this, this young man, was, was a Greek, and so he was a Gentile uh, believer. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, so it was appropriate that uh, Titus would be his follower. So um, Paul assigns Titus... Uh, this Greek believer, to a Greek island by the name of Crete. And Crete was at the, uh, and still is to this day. How many of you have been to the island of Crete? Anybody? A couple? Two or three? Yeah. Um, it's at the tip of the Aegean Sea. And uh, in the first century, some uh, 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, that's the time period uh, that we're looking at here when the Apostle Paul wrote uh, this letter, uh, the, the situation was a challenging one for the church on the island of Crete. And so Titus had been uh, given this very difficult charge by the Apostle Paul. Crete was uh, home to a network of, of small house churches, if you will, likely established uh, after Pentecost when uh, Peter preached that first message and 3,000 came to Christ there in Jerusalem. Uh, many probably dispersed back. These would have been uh, Jews who lived there and started these small churches on the island. The problem was that over the 30 years that had transpired since these churches began, they had drifted. They had drifted from the gospel and they had begun to look more like Cretans than they did Christians. And so the people of Crete, as we discussed last week, were known for their laziness. They were known for their immorality, uh, for their dishonesty. They just weren't known for being good people. The churches there had lost their focus on Jesus and were allowing the culture to dictate their direction. In other words, the church had become indistinguishable from the world around it. Not so different from the challenges that the church faces today. The churches on Crete were not only being absorbed into the culture, they were being invaded by false teachers 
who were leading those believers astray. These false teachers known as Judaizers uh, were diminishing the finished work of Jesus on the cross. They were teaching the Cretans that in addition to faith in Christ, they needed to follow the Jewish law. They needed to follow this set of rules to be accepted by God. And Paul calls them the circumcision group. Because they required of every Christian the Jewish rite of circumcision. Paul also called them mutilators of the flesh in Galatians. And said this in Galatians. He says, as for those agitators, those Judaizers, those false teachers, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Strong words against strong heresy in the church. The Judaizers were a powerful and persuasive group that Paul battled consistently in his ministry. Their teaching put the burden of salvation back on the shoulders of men. And so there were two extremes, if you will, that Titus was called into in the church of Crete. There were those that were taking God's grace for granted. They were looking more like the culture than they were Christ. And then there were those who were being led into legalism or works righteousness by the Judaizers, the rule followers. Those who were trying to put the burden of salvation back on the shoulders of men. And so we have these two extremes that are present in the church in Crete. And the church was torn between these two extremes. We see that in churches today quite often. Either a church is, is, is often running away with the gospel of grace or they're trying to work their way into God's good grace. Jesus came full of grace and what? Truth. Jesus was the perfect balance between grace and truth. And as we follow him, we move into a healthy expression of what that looks like, not only in the church, but in our lives as well. They were torn between two extremes. And it was into this environment that Titus was called, Paul said, to straighten it out. Paul gives him his assignment, as we shared last week in, in verse 5 of Titus 1. Paul says, the reason I left you there, Titus, in Crete, was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. In other words, Paul says, Titus, I need you to get in there. I need you to roll your sleeves up, bring truth to bear in these churches, and straighten them out. But if you'll notice, where does Paul tell Titus to start? With the leadership. At the top. He says, I want you to appoint, appoint elders. Start at the top, inferring that these, if these churches are going to turn it around, if these churches are ultimately going to be good expressions of the gospel, that's going to begin with finding good leaders. Because everything rises or falls on leadership. Whether it's a nation, 
a business, a church, a family. And the best way to get things back on track, the best way to restore moral integrity to any organization is to start at the top. But leadership in the church is not about being successful, is it? Not about being successful in the world's eyes. It's about being faithful in God's eyes. Just because someone is successful by the world's standards doesn't mean they'd make a good leader in the church. How many of you have figured that out? How many of you have seen this train wreck? Just because somebody has great business success doesn't mean that that's transferable to being a good leader necessarily. It's not disqualifying, certainly, but doesn't automatically mean that they would be a good leader in the church. And the church often, even today, makes that mistake. By automatically thinking that those who look good in the world's eyes would make good leaders in the church. But good and godly leadership is not about power, is it? It's about just the opposite. It's about humility. It's not about being served and expecting others to serve you. Good and godly leadership is about serving others. Washing the feet of others as Jesus did. That's Jesus' model. And when leaders of the church lose sight of that, which they definitely had on the Isle of Crete, the church goes astray. We see it time and time again today. Everything rises or falls on leadership. You might say, Phil, well, you know, I'm not a leader. So, you know, I'm kind of checking out of this message. It really doesn't apply to me. Let me tell you, everybody is leading somebody. Do you hear me? This message and the criteria that we find in Titus, the criteria that we find in Timothy for elders in the church, this is not just for the, the super Christians to, quote, aspire to, but this is the character of Christ. This is what we're all called to as followers of Jesus Christ. And the reality is, everybody is leading somebody. Who's looking to you as a leader? Think about it. You may have never really thought about this before. You're just like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not a leader. I, I'm just not gifted in that way. Who's looking to you to lead them? Your children, without a doubt, whether they're two years old or 25 years old, let me tell you, they're looking. You're a leader. Your grandchildren, your grandchildren are looking to you to lead them. Your spouse, certainly. Your co-workers, your friends, your small group. And we're all leaders. Everybody's leading somebody. And everything rises or falls on leadership. 
Paul knew this. The churches in Crete had bad leaders. They had horrible leaders. They had no gatekeepers. Their doctrine was being assaulted. Their people were being assimilated, not into the character of Christ, but into the culture. False teachers had gained a foothold there. Their witness was being watered down. They were indistinguishable from the the culture and the world around them. And so Paul tells Titus, man, the first order of business, find good leaders. And then he gives Titus a, a list of qualities that those leaders need to have and and really a list that they don't need to have. Sort of positives and negatives here in verses 6 through 9. Paul tells Titus first and foremost, and this is a high bar. He says an elder, <clears throat> and you'll see the words elder and overseer used interchangeably here. It's the highest office of leadership in the church. So here at Tapestry, I'm the teaching elder in the church. I'm the only consistent elder on the elder board. And then we have three other elders currently who are nominated by the church. And every year, one of those elders rolls off the board. So there's never sort of this power lock of three or four people who are constantly making all the decisions in the church. And so when he says elder, he's talking about the highest leadership position in the church. He said, an elder must be what? Blameless. You know, we've talked about this, and I typically preach on this every year when it comes time for elder nomination, which is that time of the year right now. But one of the ways that we talk about this, instead of viewing this as an elder needs to be, what word comes to mind when you think of blameless? Perfect. Does an elder need to be perfect? Absolutely not. But, I mean, I'm disqualified. Count me out. Right? An elder needs to be... Man, I started looking deeply, more deeply into this word um, than, I, than I really ever have in this message. And it literally means this. Someone with no credible accusations. An elder needs to be someone with no credible accusations. In other words, there aren't a whole lot of people pointing fingers at them and accusing them of credible things. Because where there's smoke, there's what? Fire. It says an elder must be blameless. And one of the ways that we've talked about that uh, here um, as we've nominated elders is you need to look at the aim of an elder and use that word aim as an acronym. The attitude, the integrity, and the maturity of the man. That he wakes up every day aiming at the character of Christ. And that is then manifest in his attitude, his integrity, and his maturity. So Paul says to Titus, an elder must be blameless. The husband of but one wife. Elsewhere that's translated a one-woman man. A one-woman man. One of the challenges in Crete was, and for that matter throughout the Roman Empire, a lot of men were three women men. They had their wife, whom they had children with to move the line forward. They had their maidservant also 
in the house. And then there were temple prostitutes in that culture as well. And so a lot of the people, a lot of the men in this culture were not faithful to just one woman. They were three women men. And then he goes on to say, look for men whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. In other words, look for men whose lives are not lightning rods. They're not causing controversy and bringing accusation to their lives constantly. Faithful men who lead their families well. You know, it's fascinating to me these days how many popular pastors and, and you know, when, when, when you're in the ministry, you know, just like whatever vocation you're in, you're sort of in that vein and you're in that stream when it comes to the emails and the social media and all the things that come your way. And so, you know, you're, you're, you, you keep up with and you see what's current with, you know, other pastors and churches in the country. It's fascinating to me these days how many popular pastors from people like Mark Driscoll. Anybody familiar with Mark Driscoll? Okay. To just this last week, Billy Graham's grandson. How many popular pastors get removed from their churches because of abuse, often sexual uh, impropriety? Or some sort of moral failure. And then they pop back up a year later in another city. Write another book. And all is forgotten. It is an amazing pervasive pattern. That you see in church culture today. An elder. A leader in the church, Paul says, must be blameless. Not perfect. But free of credible accusations. And the, the situations I'm talking about, these aren't just credible accusations. This stuff's been proven. And yet they pop back up again and people flock to them once again. Paul says, we don't need leaders like that, Titus. Paul says, look for these kind of men. Men who are faithful to their wives. Men who don't have credible accusations. Men who lead their families well. Men who are good shepherds of their children. Not perfect children. None of us have perfect children. But as Paul told Timothy, he said this. He said, if anyone does not know, 1 Timothy 3, 5. If anybody doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And we all face challenges in our families. That's just part of living on this planet. The question is, are we addressing those challenges in the world's way? Or are we addressing them in God's way? The Cretan way or the Christian way? Because everything rises or falls on what? Leadership. Leadership. And everybody is leading somebody. Let me ask you something this morning. As a follower of Jesus Christ, what kind of leader are you? As a follower of Jesus Christ, what kind of leader are you? Paul goes on to give Titus then five negatives, if you will, to look for. 
He says, since an overseer or an elder is entrusted with God's work. Again, he says he must be blameless. Not overbearing. Not quick-tempered. Not given to drunkenness. Not violent. Not pursuing dishonest gain. You know, I've read these lists in in Titus and, and Timothy a hundred times over the years. And a lot of times these types of lists, just we hydroplane over them. They go in one ear and, and out the other. But as I was reading these this week, this is what struck me. Each of those characteristics, each of these negative characteristics, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not giving a drunk, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, each of those wrecks relationships. Think about it. Each one of those ruins relationships. Paul tells Titus to look for leaders who are emotionally and relationally mature. Not overbearing. Also translating not self-willed. In other words, they don't always have to have their way. The worst elders I've worked with and seen over the last 25 years, and I'm not talking about people here, okay, were people who had to have their way. We try to stay as far away from that as we can get. It makes for a supreme challenge in leadership in the church. So he says, not overbearing or self-willed, Not easily angered, not irresponsible with alcohol, not prone to violence. Again, all relationship wreckers. And he says, not pursuing dishonest gain. In other words, not people who do do anything to get ahead. All of those are volatile characteristics that ruin relationship. I'd really never read it. That way, but God just brought it off the page this week to me. These types of personalities, though, often rise to the top, and I believe that's what was going on in Crete. They often rise to the top. Why? Because they're aggressive. They're aggressive. But Paul tells Titus, steer clear of men like this in leadership, or women like this in leadership. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Find men who model what it looks like to relate well to other people. Fundamentally, the gospel is about relationship. We can know the Bible up one side and down the other. We can quote full books of the Bible. All that kind of stuff, man. But if we don't relate well to other people, we've missed the heart of the gospel. That's what it's all about. God relationally reaching down to us, sacrificing His own Son on our behalf that we might be restored in relationship with Him. The heart of the gospel is relational. Paul's saying, find relational leaders. Find people who relate well to others and are good representatives of what it means to be reconciled to a loving God. 
But the opposite of that often rises to the top. Find men who model what it looks like to relate well to others. And the longer I lead in ministry, the more important I see this to be. Leaders in the church need to be bridge builders. They need to be actively fostering relationships and modeling what it looks like to do that for the people they lead. Emotionally and relationally mature. Titus had his work cut out for him. He was going to need leaders with integrity, with humility. Leaders who had not pushed their way to the top in these churches. Reluctant leaders. Hear me. Reluctant leaders who were following Christ well. Some of the best elders we've had over the years in this church have been men who were reluctant to lead. And as you look at the pattern through Scripture from Moses and many of the Old Testament patriarchs, they were reluctant leaders. Paul says look for reluctant leaders who are following Christ well. You know, it's been said that nobody is fit to lead unless they first learn to follow. Are they good followers? I believe that's at the heart of Paul's instruction to Titus here. If you want to find good leaders, look for good followers who foster good relationships. And he goes on to say, rather, he must be hospitable. The opposite of hospitable is what? Inhospitable. You ever run into an inhospitable church leader? Again, not here. Some of those other churches. He must be hospitable. You know what that word literally means? A lover of strangers. Paul says that's a criteria for leadership in the church. You need to be hospitable. That doesn't mean you put an apron on and serve muffins. It can. That's all good. That's a gift of hospitality. To be hospitable means to love strangers. Man, you got your arms open. When people walk in this door, you need to be there. With your arms open wide. That's great to say. That's the kind of thing Paul's talking about here. A lover of strangers who loves what is good. Fundamental. He's self-controlled. He's upright. He's holy. He's disciplined. All those characteristics are relationship enhancers, not ruiners. With God and with other people. Look for men who have a heart for people. Look for men who have a heart for God. Then he says this to Titus. He says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. So we're not just looking for jovial people who, you know, hug everybody. He says, you got to know the word, man. They got to know the word and they got to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You've got to be able to recognize that stuff. This isn't everybody. Good leaders 
know God's word and understand the gospel. They get the message of Jesus' finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. They get His death, His burial, and His resurrection to give us life again. They get the grace of God which is not to be taken for granted, but embraced as the catalyst for a good life. John Maxwell, I think, sums up well Paul's criteria for good leadership. And then I'll close Maxwell said this, he said, a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. I love that. Everything rises or falls on leadership. And everybody is leading somebody. Man, given these positive and negative characteristics that Paul gives Titus, Where do you need to become a better leader? And we're all, none of us is there. And I know as I look at these positive and negative characteristics, there's ten of them here. And I'm going, boy, I need to work on that. Boy, that's my weakness. How about you? Where do you need to become a better leader for those who are looking to you? The Tapestry's elder selection team begins the process this month, at the end of this month, of selecting our next elder. And I would ask uh, that everyone in the congregation uh, pray for this ten-person team as they seek God's heart and use this criteria uh, in appointing the next good leader of our church. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that uh, you are a good, good father. That you are the ultimate example of good leadership. And Lord, that you sent Jesus in the flesh that we might uh, see that example uh, walking this earth. Father, may we keep our eyes fixed upon the author and the perfecter of our faith. May we not forget Lord, that we're all leading in some capacity and as followers of Christ, we're all called to emulate his character. I pray today, Father, that as we look at these characteristics, that that we would each sort of evaluate where we are in light of those. And Lord, I pray that you would empower us through your spirit, which is the only way that we're capable of of moving forward in these areas, uh, that you would empower us to be the people, to be the church, to be the leaders that you have called us to be, that we might be a light to the culture and the world around us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.